Wuthering Heights, Chapter 22 Summer drew to an end, and early autumn. It was past Michaelmas, but the harvest was late that year, and a few of our fields were still uncleared. Mr Linton and his daughter would frequently walk out among the reapers. At the carrying of the last sheaves they stayed till dusk, and the evening happening to be chill and damp, my master caught a bad cold that settled obstinately on his lungs and confined him indoors throughout the whole of the winter, nearly without intermission. Poor Cathy, frightened from her little romance, had been considerably sadder and duller since its abandonment, and her father insisted on her reading less and taking more exercise. She had his companionship no longer. I esteemed it a duty to supply its lack as much as possible with mine, an inefficient substitute, for I could only spare two or three hours from my numerous diurnal occupations, to follow her footsteps, and then my society was obviously less desirable than his. On an afternoon in October, or the beginning of November, a fresh watery afternoon when the turf and the paths were rustling with moist withered leaves, and the cold blue sky was half hidden by clouds, dark grey streamers rapidly mounting from the west and boding abundant rain, I requested my young lady to forego her ramble because I was certain of showers. She refused and I unwillingly donned a cloak and took my umbrella to accompany her on a stroll to the bottom of the park, a formal walk which she generally affected if low-spirited and that she invariably was when Mr Edgar had been worse than ordinary, a thing never known from his confession but guessed both by her and me from his increased silence and the melancholy of his countenance. She went sadly on. There was no running or bounding now, though the chill wind might have tempted her to race. And often from the side of my eye I could detect her raising a hand and brushing something off her cheek. I gazed round for a means of diverting her thoughts. On one side of the road rose a high, rough bank, where hazels and stunted oaks, with their roots half exposed, held uncertain tenure. The soil was too loose for the latter, and strong winds had blown some nearly horizontal. In the summer, Miss Catherine delighted to climb among these trunks and sit in the branches, swinging twenty feet above the ground. And I, pleased with her agility and her light, childish heart, still considered it proper to scold every time I caught her at such an elevation, but so that she knew there was no necessity for descending. From dinner to tea she would lie in her breeze-rocked cradle, doing nothing except singing old songs, my nursery law, to herself, or watching the birds, joint tenants, feed and entice their young ones to fly, or nestling with closed lids, half thinking, half dreaming, happier than words can express. Look, miss, I exclaimed, pointing to a nook under the roots of one twisted tree. Winter is not here yet. There's a little flower. Up yonder, the last bud from the multitude of bluebells that clouded those turf steps in July with a lilac mist. Will you clamber up and pluck it to show Papa? Cathy stared a long time at the lonely blossom trembling in its earthy shelter and replied at length, No, I'll not touch it. But it looks melancholy, does it not, Ellen? Yes, I observed, about as starved and sackless as you. Your cheeks are bloodless. Let us take hold of hands and run. You're so low, I dare say I shall keep up with you. No, she repeated, and continued sauntering on, 
pausing at intervals to muse over a bit of moss or a tuft of blanched grass or fungus spreading its bright orange among the heaps of brown foliage. And ever and anon her hand was lifted to her averted face. Catherine, why are you crying, love? I asked, approaching and putting my arm over her shoulder. You mustn't cry because Papa has a cold. Be thankful it is nothing worse. She now put no further restraint on her tears. Her breath was stifled by sobs. Oh, it will be something worse, she said. And what shall I do when you and Papa leave me and I'm all by myself? I can't forget your words, Ellen. They are always in my ear. How life will be changed. How dreary the world will be when Papa and you are dead. No one can tell whether you won't die before us, I replied. It's wrong to anticipate evil. We'll hope there are years and years to come before any of us go. Master is young and I am strong, hardly 45. My mother lived till 80, a canty dame to the last. And suppose Mr Linton was spared till he saw 60. That would be more years than you have counted, miss. And would it not be foolish to mourn a calamity above 20 years beforehand? But Aunt Isabella was younger than Papa, she remarked, gazing up with timid hope to seek further consolation. Aunt Isabella had not you and me to nurse her, I replied. She wasn't as happy as Master, and she hadn't as much to live for. All you need do is to wait well on your father and cheer him by letting him see you cheerful, and avoid giving him anxiety on any subject. Mind that, Cathy. I'll not disguise, but you might kill him if you were wild and reckless, and cherished a foolish, fanciful affection for the son of a person who would be glad to have him in his grave and allowed him to discover that you fretted over the separation he has judged it expedient to make. I fret about nothing on earth except Papa's illness, answered my companion. I care for nothing in comparison with Papa, and I'll never, never, oh never, while I have my senses, do an act or say a word to vex him. I love him better than myself, Ellen, and I know it by this. I pray every night that I may live after him because I would rather be miserable than he should be. That proves I love him better than myself. Good words, I replied, but deeds must prove it also. And after he is well, remember you don't forget resolutions formed in the hour of fear. As we talked, we neared a door that opened upon the road. And my young lady, lightening into sunshine again, climbed up and seated herself on the top of the wall reaching over to gather some hips that bloomed scarlet on the summit branches of the wild rose trees, shadowing the highway side. The lower fruit had disappeared, but only birds could touch the upper, except from Cathy's present station. In stretching to pull them, her hat fell off, and as the door was locked, she proposed scrambling down to recover it. I bid her be cautious, lest she got a fall, and she nimbly disappeared. But the return was no such easy matter. The stones were smooth and nearly cemented, and the rose bushes and blackberry stragglers could yield no assistance in reascending. I, like a fool, didn't recollect that till I heard her laughing and exclaiming, Ellen, you'll have to fetch the key, or else I must run round to the porter's lodge. I can't scale the ramparts on this side. Stay where you are, I answered. I have my bundle of keys in my pocket. Perhaps I may manage to open it. If not, I'll go. Catherine amused herself with dancing to and fro before the door while I tried all the keys in succession. I had applied the last and found that none would do, 
so repeating my desire that she would remain there, I was about to hurry home as fast as I could when an approaching sound arrested me. It was the trot of a horse. Kathy's dance stopped also. Who is that? I whispered. Ellen, I wish you could open the door, whispered back my companion anxiously. Ho, Miss Linton, cried a deep voice, the riders. I'm glad to meet you. Don't be in haste to enter, for I have an explanation to ask and obtain. I shan't speak to you, Mr Heathcliff, answered Catherine. Papa says you are a wicked man and you hate both him and me, and Ellen says the same. That is nothing to the purpose, said Heathcliff. He it was. I don't hate my son, I suppose, and it is concerning him that I demand your attention. Yes, you have cause to blush. Two or three months since, were you not in the habit of writing to Linton, making love in play, eh? You deserved both of you flogging for that. You especially, the elder, and less sensitive as it turns out. I've got your letters, and if you give me any pertness, I'll send them to your father. I presume you grew weary of the amusement and dropped it, didn't you? Well, you dropped Linton with it into a slough of despond. He was in earnest, in love, really. As true as I live, he's dying for you, breaking his heart at your fickleness, not figuratively, but actually. Though Hareton has made him a stand in jest for six weeks, and I have used more serious measures and attempted to frighten him out of his idiocy, he gets worse daily, and he'll be under the sod before summer, unless you restore him. How can you lie so glaringly to the poor child? I called from the inside. Pray ride on. How can you deliberately get up such paltry falsehoods? Miss Cathy, I'll knock the lock off with a stone. You won't believe that vile nonsense. You can feel in yourself. It's impossible that a person should die for the love of a stranger. I was not aware there were eavesdroppers, muttered the detected villain. Worthy, Miss Dean, I like you, but I don't like your double dealing, he added aloud. How could you lie so glaringly as to affirm I hated the poor child and invent bugbear stories to terrify her from my doorstones? Catherine Linton, the very name warms me. My bonny lass, I shall be from home all this week. Go and see if I have not spoken truth. Do, there's a darling. Just imagine your father in my place and Linton in yours. Then think how you would value your careless lover if he refused to stir a step to comfort you when your father himself entreated him. And don't, from pure stupidity, fall into the same error. I swear on my salvation he's going to the grave and none but you can save him. The lock gave way and I issued out. I swear Linton is dying, repeated Heathcliff, looking hard at me, and grief and disappointment are hastening his death. Nellie, if you won't let her go, you can walk over yourself, but I shall not return till this time next week and I think your master would scarcely object to her visiting her cousin. Come in, said I, taking Cathy by the arm and half forcing her to re-enter, for she lingered, viewing with troubled eyes the features of the speaker, too stern to express his inward deceit. He pushed his horse close, and bending down, observed, Miss Catherine, I'll own to you that I have little patience with Linton, and Hareton and Joseph have less. I'll own that he's a harsh set. He's with a harsh set. He pines for kindness as well as love, and a kind word from you would be his best medicine. Don't mind Mrs Dean's cruel cautions. 
but be generous and contrive to see him. He dreams of you day and night and cannot be persuaded that you don't hate him since you neither write nor call. I closed the door and rolled a stone to assist the loosened lock in holding it and spreading my umbrella I drew my charge underneath for the rain began to drive through the moaning branches of the trees and warned us to avoid delay. Our hurry prevented any comment on the encounter with Heathcliff as we stretched towards home but I divined instinctively that Catherine's heart was now clouded in double darkness. Her features were so sad they did not seem hers. She evidently regarded what she had heard as every syllable true. The master had retired to rest before we came in. Cathy stole to his room to inquire how he was. He had fallen asleep. She returned and asked me to sit with her in the library. We took our tea together and afterwards she lay down on the rug and told me not to talk for she was weary. I got a book and pretended to read. As soon as she supposed me absorbed in my occupation, she recommenced her silent weeping. It appeared at present her favourite diversion. I suffered her to enjoy it a while, then I expostulated, deriding and ridiculing all Mr Heathcliff's assertions about his son, as if I was certain she would coincide. Alas, I hadn't the skill to counteract the effect his account had produced. It was just what he intended. You may be right, Helen, she answered, but I shall never feel at ease till I know. And I must tell Linton it is not my fault that I don't write and convince him that I shall not change. What use were anger and protestations against her silly credulity? We parted that night, hostile, but the next day beheld me on the road to Wuthering Heights by the side of my willful young mistress's pony. I couldn't bear to witness her sorrow to see her pale, dejected countenance and heavy eyes, and I yielded, in the faint hope that Linton himself might prove, by his reception of us, how little of the tale was founded on fact. Chapter 23 The rainy night had ushered in a misty morning, half frost, half drizzle, and temporary brooks crossed our path, gurgling from the uplands. My feet were thoroughly wetted. I was cross and low, exactly the humour suited for making the most of these disagreeable things. We entered the farmhouse by the kitchen way to ascertain whether Mr Heathcliff were really absent because I put slight faith in his own affirmation. Joseph seemed sitting in a sort of elysium alone, beside a roaring fire, a quart of ale on the table near him, bristling with large pieces of toasted oat cake, and his black short pipe in his mouth. Catherine ran to the hearth to warm herself. I asked if the master was in. My question remained so long unanswered that I thought the old man had grown deaf, and I repeated it louder. Nay, he snarled, or rather screamed through his nose. Nay, you must come back where you come from. "'Joseph!' cried a peevish voice simultaneously with me from the inner room. "'How often am I to call you? "'There are only a few red ashes now. "'Joseph, come this moment!' "'Vigorous puffs and an absolute stare into the grate "'declared he had no ear for this appeal. "'The housekeeper and Hareton were invisible, "'one gone on an errand, the other at his work, probably. 
Queen knew Linton's tones and entered. Oh, I hope you'll die in a garret, starved to death, said the boy, mistaking our approach for that of his negligent attendant. He stopped on observing his error. His cousin flew to him. Is that you, Miss Linton, he said, raising his head from the arm of the great chair in which she reclined. No, don't kiss me, it takes my breath. Dear me, Papa said you would call, continued he, after recovering a little from Catherine's embrace, where he stood by looking very contrite. Will you shut the door, if you please? You left it open. And those, those detestable creatures won't bring coals to the fire. It's so cold. I stirred up the cinders and fetched a scuttle for myself. The, indiv the invalid complained of being covered with ashes, but he had a tiresome cough and looked feverish and ill, so I did not rebuke his temper. Well, Linton, murmured Catherine, when his corrugated brow relaxed, are you glad to see me? Can I do you any good? Why didn't you come before, he asked. You should have come, instead of writing. It tired me dreadfully writing those long letters. I'd far rather have talked to you. Now I can neither bear to talk nor anything else. I wonder where Zilla is. Will you, looking at me, Step into the kitchen and see. I had received no thanks for my other service, and being unwilling to run to and fro at his behest, I replied, Nobody is out there but Joseph. I want to drink, he exclaimed fretfully, turning away. Zilla is constantly gadding off to Gimmerton since Papa went. It's miserable, and I'm obliged to come down here. They resolve never to hear me upstairs. Is your father attentive to you, Master Heathcliff? I asked perceiving Catherine to be checked in her friendly advances. Attentive? He makes them a little more attentive, at least, he cried. The wretches! Do you know, Miss Linton, that brute, that brute Hareton laughs at me? I hate him. Indeed, I hate them all. They are odious beings. Cathy began searching for some water. She lighted on a pitcher in the dresser, filled a tumbler and brought it. He bid her add a spoonful of wine from the bottle on the table and having swallowed a small portion, appeared more tranquil, and said she was very kind. "'And are you glad to see me?' asked she, reiterating her former question, and pleased to detect a faint dawn of a smile. "'Yes, I am. It's something new to hear a voice like yours,' he replied. "'But I have been vexed because you wouldn't come, and Papa swore it was owing to me. He called me a pitiful, shuffling, worthless thing, and said you despised me.' And if he had been in my place, he would have been more the master of the Grange than your father by this time. But you don't despise me, do you, miss? I wish you would say Catherine or Cathy, interrupted my young lady. Despise you? No. Next to Papa and Ellen, I love you better than anybody living. I don't love Mr Heathcliff, though, and I dare not come when he returns. He will stay away many days. Not many, answered Linton. He goes on to the moors frequently, since the shooting season commenced, and you might spend an hour or two with me in his absence. Do say you will. I should think I should not be peevish with you. You'd not provoke me, and you'd always be ready to help me, wouldn't you? Yes, said Catherine, stroking his long, soft hair. If I could only get Papa's consent, I'd spend half my time with you. Pretty Linton, I wish you were my brother. And then you would like me as well as your father, observed he more cheerfully. 
but Papa says you would love me better than him and all the world if you were my wife. So I'd rather you were that. No, I should never love anybody better than Papa, she returned gravely. And people hate their wives sometimes, but not their sisters and brothers. And if you were the latter, you would live with us and Papa would be as fond of you as he is of me. Linton denied that people ever hated their wives, but Cathy affirmed they did, and in her wisdom instanced her own father's aversion to her aunt, his own father's aversion to her aunt. I endeavoured to stop her thoughtless tongue. I couldn't succeed till everything she knew was out. Master Heathcliff, much irritated, asserted her relation was false. Papa told me, and Papa does not tell falsehoods she answered pertly. My papa scorns yours, cried Linton. He calls him a sneaking fool. Yours is a wicked man, retorted Catherine, and you are very naughty to dare repeat what he says. He must be wicked to have made Aunt Isabella leave him as she did. She didn't leave him, said the boy. You shan't contradict me. She did, cried my young lady. Well, I'll tell you something, said Linton. Your mother hated your father. Now then. Oh, exclaimed Catherine, too enraged to continue. And she loved mine, he added. You little liar. I hate you now, she panted, and her face grew red with passion. She did, she did, sang Linton, sinking into the recess of his chair and leaning back his head to enjoy the agitation of the other disputant who stood behind. Hush, Master Heathcliff, I said. That's your father's tale too, I suppose. It isn't. You hold your tongue, he answered. She did, Catherine, she did, she did, she did, she did. Cathy, beside herself, gave the chair a violent push and caused him to fall against one arm. He was immediately seized by a suffocating cough that soon ended his triumph. It lasted so long that it frightened even me. As to his cousin, she wept with all her might, aghast at the mischief she'd done, though she said nothing. I held him till the fit exhausted itself. Then he thrust me away and leant his head down silently. Catherine quelled her lamentations also, took a seat opposite and looked solemnly into the fire. How do you feel now, Master Heathcliff? I inquired after waiting ten minutes. I wish she felt as I do, he replied. Spiteful, cruel thing. Hareton never touches me. He never struck me in his life. And I was better today and there... His voice died in a whimper. I didn't strike you, muttered Cathy, chewing her lip to prevent another burst of emotion. He sighed and moaned like one under great suffering and kept it up for a quarter of an hour, on purpose to distress his cousin, apparently. For whenever he caught a stifled sob from her, he put renewed pain and pathos into the inflections of his voice. I'm sorry I hurt you, she said at length, racked beyond endurance, but I couldn't have been hurt by that little push, and I had no idea that you could either. You're not much, are you, Linton? Don't let me go home thinking I've done you harm. Answer. Speak to me. I can't speak to you, he murmured. You've hurt me so that I shall lie awake all night with choking with this cough. If you had it, you'd know what it was. But you'll be comfortably asleep while I'm in agony and nobody near me. 
I wonder how you would like to pass those fearful nights. And he began to wail aloud for the very pity of himself. Since you are in the habit of passing dreadful nights, I said, it won't be Miss who spoils your ease. You'd be the same had she never come. However, she shall not disturb you again and perhaps you'll get quieter when we leave you. Must I go? asked Catherine dolefully, bending over him. Do you want me to go, Linton? You can't alter what you've done, he replied pettishly, shrinking from her, unless you alter it for the worse by teasing me into a fever. Well then, I must go, she repeated. Let me alone at least, said he. I can't bear your talking. She lingered and resisted my persuasions to departure a tiresome while. But as he neither looked up nor spoke, she finally made a movement to the door and I followed. We were then recalled by a scream. Linton had slid from his seat onto the hearthstone and lay in the mere perverseness of an indulged plague of a child, determined to be as grievous and harassing as it can. I thoroughly gauged his disposition from his behaviour and saw at once it would be folly to attempt humouring him. Not so, my companion. She ran back in terror, knelt down and cried and soothed and entreated till he grew quiet from lack of breath, by no means from compunction at distressing her. I shall lift him on the settle, I said, and he may roll about as he pleases. We can't stop to watch him. I hope you are satisfied, Miss Cathy, that you are not the person to benefit him, and that his condition of health is not occasioned by attachment to you. Now, then, there he is. Come away. As soon as he knows there is nobody to buy to care for his nonsense, he'll be glad to lie still. She placed a cushion under his head and offered him some wet water. He rejected the latter and tossed uneasily on the former as if it were a stone or a block of wood. She tried to put it more comfortably. I can't do with that, he said. It's not high enough. Catherine brought another to lay above it. That's too high murmured the provoking thing. How must I arrange it then? she asked despairingly. He twinned himself up to her as she half knelt by the settle and converted her shoulder into a support. No, that won't do, I said. You'll be content with the cushion, Master Heathcliff. Miss has wasted too much time on you already. We cannot remain five minutes longer. Yes, yes, we can, replied Cathy. He's good and patient now. He's beginning to think I shall have far greater misery than he will tonight, if I believe he is the worse for my visit, and then I dare not come again. Tell the truth about it, Linton, for I mustn't come if I've hurt you. You must come, to cure me, he answered. You ought to come, because you have hurt me. You know you have, extremely. I was not as ill when you entered as I am at present, was I? But you've made yourself ill by crying and being in a passion. I didn't do it all, said his cousin. However, we'll be friends now. And you want me? You would wish to see me sometimes, really? I told you I did, he replied impatiently. Sit on the settle and let me lean on your knee. That's as my mummy used to do. Whole afternoons together. Sit quite still and don't talk. But you may sing a song if you can sing. Or you may say a nice long interesting ballad. One of those you promised to teach me. Or a story. I'd rather have a ballad, though. Begin.
Catherine repeated the longest she could remember. The employment pleased both mightily. Linton would have another, and after that another, notwithstanding my strenuous objections, and so they went on until the clock struck twelve, and we heard Hareton in the court returning for his dinner. "'And tomorrow, Catherine, will you be here tomorrow? asked young Heathcliff, holding her frock as she rose reluctantly. "'No,' I answered, "'nor next day neither.' She, however, gave a different response evidently, for his forehead cleared as she stooped and whispered in his ear. "'You won't go tomorrow. Recollect, miss,' I commenced when we were out of the house. "'You are not dreaming of it, are you?' She smiled. "'Oh, I'll take good care,' I continued, "'and I'll have that lock mended, and you can escape by no way else.' "'I can get over the wall,' she said, laughing. "'The Grange is not a prison, Ellen, and you are not my jailer.' And besides, I'm almost seventeen, I'm a woman, and I'm certain Linton would recover quickly if he had me to look after him. I'm older than he is, you know, and wiser, less childish, am I not? And he'll soon do as I direct him, with some slight coaxing. He's a pretty little darling when he's good. I'd make such a pet of him if he were mine. We should never quarrel, should we, after we were used to each other. Don't you like him, Ellen? Like him? I exclaimed. The worst-tempered bit of a sickly slip that ever struggled into its teens. Happily, as Mr Heathcliff conjectured, he'll not win twenty. I doubt whether he'll see spring indeed, and small loss to his family whenever he drops off. And lucky it is for us that his father took him. The kinder he was treated, the more tedious and selfish he'd be. I'm glad you have no chance of having him for a husband, Miss Catherine. My companion waxed seriously at hearing this speech. To speak of his death so regardlessly wounded her feelings. He's younger than I, she answered, after a protracted pause of meditation. And he ought to live the longest. He will. He must live as long as I do. He's as strong now as when he first came into the north. I'm, prom I'm positive of that. It's only a cold that ails him, the same as Papa has. You said Papa will get better, and why shouldn't he? Well, well, I cried. After all, we needn't trouble ourselves, for listen, miss, and mind, I'll keep my word. If you attempt going to Wuthering Heights again, with or without me, I shall inform Mr Linton, and unless he allow it, the intimacy with your cousin must not be revived. It has been revived, muttered Cathy sulkily. Must not be continued, then, I said. We'll see was her reply, and she set off at a gallop, leaving me to toil in the rear. We both reached home before our dinner time. My master supposed we'd been wandering through the park, and therefore he demanded no explanation of our absence. As soon as I entered, I hastened to change my soaked shoes and stockings, but sitting such a while at the heights had done the mischief. On the succeeding morning I was laid up, and during three weeks I remained incapacitated for attending to my duties, a calamity never experienced prior to that period, and never, I am thankful to say, since. <coughs> my little mistress behaved like an angel in coming to wait on me and to cheer my solitude. The confinement brought me exceedingly low. It is wearisome to a stirring, active body, but few have slighter reasons for complaint than I had. The moment Catherine left Mr Linton's room, she appeared at my bedside. Her day was divided between us. 
no amusement usurped a minute. She neglected her meals, her studies and her play, and she was the fondest nurse that ever watched. She must have had a warm heart, and she loved her father so, to give so much to me. I said her days were divided between us, but the master retired early and I generally needed nothing after six o'clock. Thus the evening was her own. Poor thing. I never considered what she did with herself after tea, and though frequently when she looked in to bid me good night, I remarked a fresh colour in her cheeks and a pinkness over her slender fingers. Instead of fancying the hue borrowed from a cold ride across the moors, I laid it to the charge of a hot fire in the library. <laughs>